Support for Healthcare Americana comes from Freedom HealthWorks. With Freedom HealthWorks, physicians, employers, and patients can thrive in direct care. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com to start your journey into direct care today. From Freedom HealthWorks, it's Healthcare Americana, a show about innovators, idealists, and pioneers in healthcare. These are their stories. I am your host, Christopher Heap. I'm joined today by Dr. Kimberly Leg Corba, a direct primary care physician who has become a force in the industry and is just about the biggest, staunchest advocate for direct care. At Healthcare Americana, we always want to share ideas about getting more doctors to see the light, understand that they're being used by their health system employers, understand that there's a different way of doing things, and help them see that independent practice is very much still alive. I know some physicians who have had to sign new three-year contracts at a lower salary for three years, and they're not going to be bonus. When somebody else is controlling your puppet strings, that's really uncomfortable, <laughs> especially when you're working at what we do for a living. That, to me, would be enough to make me want to figure out how to run a business. We obviously think that direct care, increased competition in the healthcare market, transparent pricing, a doctor-patient relationship, and physicians being leaders in their communities are great ideas. This is the mission of Freedom HealthWorks and Healthcare Americana teams. The direct care world is growing, but we're still just scratching the surface. Dr. Corba, are those of us active in direct care, are we, are we visionaries or are we zealots in a limited industry? <laughs> well... Are you asking that question pre-COVID or post-COVID? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, that's, a, that's a great question back, you know. Usually, uh, I'm, I'm like, what? Are, are, we, are we asking answering questions with questions here? But uh, <laughs> let's, let's go with both, you know. Take them in order, okay. pre and, pre and uh, well, we're not post-COVID, so pre and during COVID. How about that? Yeah. yeah, we're intra-COVID. <laughs> intra-COVID. I like that. I can work with that. <laughs> um, well, I think if you if we wound the clock back to you know any time before March of this year, um, you know I think I think you know maybe even three years ago, four years ago, zealots, uh, fringers, fringe movement, outliers—you could have used a lot of words to describe us, rebels. <laughs> um, and as time has passed on. Uh, even up until the pandemic started, you know, it was definitely DPC was gaining more traction for multiple reasons, um, mostly uh, because doctors were trying to find a way to do a better job for their patients and bring back the patient-doctor relationship, lower costs, increased access, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it's been an uphill battle, but with time, I think since 2014, the last time I looked, our growth rate had been 800% based on the DPC mapper. And mm -hmm. I put that together for a lecture I did and spoke to Phil Eskew about it. He, he kind of backed up the uh, figure I came up with, but I haven't recalculated it in two years, but it's 800% two years ago, growth rate is pretty darn good and it probably went up from there. So it was gaining traction, uh, whether or not we were uh, renegades, but um, <laughs> here comes COVID. Here comes a pandemic of the century. <laughs> exactly. It's, what an interesting time to be starting up a new business model that uh, people, physicians are really following their hearts uh, doing this. And so, yeah, like you're saying, along comes COVID. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought, first of all, that this was going to happen to the world and our country? Um, and certainly, 
whatever developed out of the pandemic from the uh, in our medical system here in the United States, nobody could have anticipated what, what was coming, including all of the regulations all of a sudden, poof, with the snap of a finger being lifted. Regulations we've been asked to, uh, not even DPC related, just healthcare reform related, these, these regulations all of a sudden with the wave of a magic wand and they're suddenly lifted. It's incredible how fast that happened. Yeah. You know, and, and we're all just holding on for dear life. Like it's a roller coaster, just trying to make sure we're still taking care of our patients, following guidelines that were constantly changing daily. Um, you know, we didn't have all the medical information on this virus and how it was behaving, how to treat it, what to expect. So it was really, uh, we were really holding on by the seat of our pants in the beginning And then we started hearing that our colleagues, you know, all had to go to telemedicine. There are colleagues that are still in the insurance world, Mm -hmm. whether independent practices or employed positions, as we're all friends. You know, we all have friends that are still, you know, that aren't DPC. And we started hearing about what was happening there, the trials and tribulations. And, you know, you couldn't bill for a telemedicine visit without a video visit in the beginning. And that regulation got changed. Meanwhile, we just literally downshifted. We do telemedicine all the time as part of direct primary care. Mm-hmm. It's and part of the DNA, we, yeah. Right, right. We didn't have to change gears so hard. We just downshifted a little bit. And, you know, it was something we were doing all the time. So it wasn't that much of a transition for us to switch our patients to mostly telemedicine visits, which, you know, most of us did for the first few weeks stayed out of the office. But the nice thing was if there was the occasional patient you had to actually examine in person in the office that you couldn't safely take care of over the phone or through another form of telemedicine, you know, we hadn't had any patients in the office, so they felt comfortable and safe coming in. They did not want to go to the ER. We did not want to send them to the ER during the height of this thing. So it was really, it really worked out well. And, um, and even now, uh, we still have some patients who are electing telemedicine visits, but we really withstood the test of this pandemic. The model, unknowingly, we didn't know it was going to be a test. We didn't know what to expect. Some of us thought that with the financial difficulties people were experiencing uh, economically that you know we might lose some patients as members. And Although some of us lost a few, we gained more. There's, there's practices that have had more calls. I don't think any practices tremendously suffered as a result of this pandemic, um, which is really, that, when times are tough um, economically and in other ways, if people value something, they'll hold on to it. So sure. it really made, really made me feel good that, you know, re- people really see the value in what we're doing and, even though, you know, they may have been strapped a little bit financially, they know, you know, not everybody would tell us, but they stayed and they knew that we were giving them good care during the height of this crisis. Yeah, and that's really important. I'm glad you mentioned that kind of the, the pre-COVID and then, like you said, the, the intra-COVID <laughs> there. Um, showing that as a lot of people were furloughed, a lot of people lost their jobs, they lost what they considered to be great health insurance or great benefits and then realize that by joining your practice or joining, by joining a DPC practice, you're like, well, I have actual real care. So it goes back to, you know, one, one thing we preach a lot is that health insurance doesn't equal health care by any means. And, you know, when you mentioned the growth in DPC, 800% is a staggering figure. But to me, we're still not at a point 
with DPC practices across the country where we can really make big positive impact. You know, if we're going from 50 practices 10 years ago up to 1,500 practices now, there's still a lot of people out there that, that are suffering from, you know, for lack of a better term, a knowledge gap. And so, following that knowledge gap uh, that exists in doctors and patients of, between those who understand what DPC direct care is and those that don't, are you seeing that that gap is closing at a pace that you're happy with? Compared to when I opened in January 2016, my staff does not have to explain what direct primary care is when a patient calls to sign up as a new patient. There is like little to no conversation on the phone about it anymore. In fact, in the, the first six months, I had to type up a, uh, like a script for my staff, depending on what insurance the patient had or if they were uninsured, um, exactly what they would say and how they would describe how DPC complements, you know, 99% of, of the um, insurance situations or lack of insurance situations. So I literally had a script typed up. They have not looked at that probably in two and a half, three years, which tells me that the general public already knows about this. We don't have to educate them as much. The medical community knows about it. The insurers know about it, which may not be a good thing, um, as they try to co-opt us. Yeah, we'll see Um, how they react, right? Yes. Well, I mean, thank gosh we don't have to – we, because we don't participate, they can react however they want. But um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the, um, so no, there has been much more awareness. The amount of awareness is incredible from me comparing to where I was in uh, the early part of 2016 to now. Well, I, I noticed you didn't give credit to your incredible management skills to be able to type out those scripts and teach your, teach your staff how to talk about it in the, uh, <laughs> in the best way possible there. So, yeah, and you saw the light. So I want to explore your story a little bit. Talk about 2016, you kind of saw the light, you know, air quotes, uh, with DPC. What was it specifically that really opened your eyes? Um, well, I was in private practice. Um, I, I opened my own solo practice in 2003. People have heard me say this before. I think it was the last possible moment in time that a doctor could hang a shingle and, and start a practice from scratch. You know, the years following that, it really almost became impossible. So I think I got in right under the wire there, and my husband was very supportive. Uh, we put our house up as collateral, <laughs> and I was boots on the ground, pounding the pavement, building my practice one patient at a time. Very small advertising, local newspapers. In fact, I saved I saved those ads just for my scrapbook. But <laughs> really, you got um, framed in the office somewhere. Yeah, no, they're they're like turning brown now because they're so old. <laughs> they're 17 years old. The newspaper clippings, but um, I did direct mail and I literally just printed something out on my zero, my machine in my office, um, colored paper and sealed it in an envelope. And, you know, it was very basic direct mail and direct marketing. But slowly, you know, with, with family practice, with word of mouth, it's really how you build your practice. I could have spent thousands on advertising and it really is just word of mouth with, with I think, in medicine in general, but specifically family practice. Yeah, so it, it's, a very, it's a very intimate conversation, you know, when somebody has to go see a doctor. It's not you're going to go around telling your friends and family exactly what's wrong, but you give somebody a good experience. And then, like you said, word of mouth, they tell everybody, right? Yep. So before I knew it, I had a full panel, 2,500 patients. 
Wow. And I was still independent, but I was 2008 with the stock market crash. And then in around 2010, the insurance companies started paying attention to quality measures out of nowhere that came out of nowhere. <laughs> they weren't rating us yet, but I knew that was coming. That's when they were able to uh, define the word quality by whatever metrics lined their pockets the best, right? Oh, it was so frustrating. I remember bringing home a pile of charts over Thanksgiving one year because I, they said I rated uh, poorly in mammograms. So I literally, I asked them for the list of patients that they, they took a sample of patients, the one insurance carrier. And I said, which patients? I want the list. Said, well, that was like pulling teeth just to get the list of patients that they rated me on. So they gave me the list. I pulled all the charts because I still had paper charts then. I came home with a pile of charts spread out over my dining room table and spent Thanksgiving break going through every chart to see who got their mammogram and who didn't because I didn't believe the rating they gave me. And sure enough, they made some mistakes. And so I went, when I went back to them, you know, I got lip service. And so I, I, right off the bat, I didn't trust what they were doing as far as the rating stuff. And, and that, that was being directly tied to my payment. I tried to dot every I and cross every T in my little practice with my patients. And yeah, so have to. I really, I really, yeah, because I was alone too. I mean, I didn't have another colleague to depend on. I really had to do it all myself. So I was part of a PHO, a physician health organization, but I started watching my independent colleagues drop off like flies and sell their practices to the hospital because in the same time we were implementing EHRs, which was terrible and expensive. But while I was in that physician health organization, which was part of our local large hospital system, now I was not employed, I was just part of the PHO, mm -hmm. they started instituting a quality assessment program called the ACE program. And I rated number one over all the owned family practices there was over a hundred of them owned by the hospital. I rated number one in quality from 2010 to 2014 as an independent. And I had found out that there were some games being played with my bonus and my, them negotiating my um, payer fee, my, you know, the fees I was getting paid, my reimbursements from the insurance companies. And 2015, I, I heard a lecture by Josh Umber, a friend of ours who's an orthopedic surgeon He's a, a big freedom fighter. He, um, ex-Navy Navy doctor, he, he's in my husband's group. He sent me this video of Josh Umber speaking at an AAFP conference. And he sent it to me like soon into 2015, Rich did. And I looked at it and I, I'm like, direct primary care. Like, this sounds too good to be true. And I said, there's no yeah, way. You hear that a lot, right? Good. Yeah, hear a lot. This, this, what's the catch? This sounds too good to be true. Right. So I filed it away. I saved the video. And I would come back to it as the year went on and just kind of looked at it. Like, this sounds too simple to be true. And then a few things happened over the summer of 2015 that made me reach my tipping point. And I knew that I was either going to have to sell the practice because they were circling me like vultures and my overhead was going up and my reimbursements were flat and they weren't bonusing me, honestly. So I decided I was going to put a bomb in the middle of my practice and transition it to DPC. <laughs> my husband, again, was very supportive. <laughs> um, it was very scary because I considered that like my third, I have two kids, but I considered that my third child and, you know, I'd always protect that with everything I had because I built it from nothing and it was mine. And I, my patients were like a family to us. And so was my staff. So I, I knew I had to like grab onto a lifeboat somewhere. And so my lifeboat was direct primary care and um, patients stayed with me when I transitioned. And um, 
it, there was a lot of education and marketing in the beginning because I grew up in this area. I went to, I grew up, I mean, I was born uh, here in Allentown and, you know, went all through grade school, high school. I went to college here. I went to Muhlenberg College. So my dad and my mom, you know, my dad's a big a businessman here and my husband's a physician. And so like I was known in the community. So when I did this, people were like, what's she doing? <laughs> yeah. What is this? Is this, what, is she leaving us? She is she lost her mind? Yeah. <laughs> probably a lot of people who are like, well, I can't go see Dr. Corba anymore because she switched over models. They didn't understand. That's her. right. And they thought it was concierge. So there, that's where the, I had a lot of education to do because while concierge serves a purpose and takes care of their patients, you know, people want that, that type of service that would not work in this area. We don't have that kind of socioeconomic mix here. And um, they had to understand that this was even more affordable and gave more value added benefits. And um, I had, I I gave four town halls, four, and people brought their friends and family. People weren't even my patients. They were mostly for my patients to educate everybody, but I had people coming that I didn't even know and they were fascinated by it. But you know, the, People are a little slow on the uptake when something's this radical and new. And, you know, we all hold on to our insurance like our safety blanket. And even though it's, you know, burning a hole the size of Kansas in our wallet, you know, they, <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah. uh, nobody wants to let go of that security blanket because, you know, they think that if they get sick that they'll be left to die without insurance, which is not the case. But that's kind of how how this country was thinking. It's starting to think differently yeah. though. I'm, I'm seeing that people are not looking at their insurance as that, uh, in that security blanket so much anymore. That's good. That's good. Talking yeah. about, you know, again, the knowledge gap going back there. Um, you mentioned a couple of things and I want to just highlight these cause I, I hear them come up a lot when physicians are talking about, Oh, I'm fed up with practice. I'm not really sure what to do. I'm thinking about selling my practice to the hospital system. And they come to find out that they have a much different definition of the term selling than the hospital system does. So I'd be mm-hmm. curious about your, your um, experience with that and some of your colleagues you talked to, because in my experience, when we talk to physicians, selling a practice just means that they may or may not get paid a signing bonus, but then the hospital just absorbs their patients. They don't get any type of money from the book of business that they've built, no. the hard years they've invested, the... Uh, the business itself, it's just they get hired by the hospital and to them that means quote unquote selling the practice. Is that right. your experience too? They didn't actually come out and give me an offer, but I kept I kept I was constantly told when you're ready, let us know. That drives um, me nuts. It drives me absolutely nuts. Yeah. <laughs> That's not but how I, business is sold. <laughs> no, no. And and honestly the insurance based practices, uh they're all that that's fair um what do they call it? Um, not for, uh, the only thing that had any worth was like the equipment and the four walls. Everything else was goodwill. Yeah. That's a goodwill value because you can't guarantee that the patients are going to stay when a practice is sold to a hospital system. So what I've been told is with the DPC practices, and I only know a few that have sold their practices. Um, not many have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some doctors are hiring and they're either hiring on other doctors as employees, or I think some of them are bringing them in as partners. But um, several people have told me, including my accountant, that, you know, if this type of practice 
when sales do start occurring, whenever that will be, there's a, there's an EBITDA value to this because there's contracts. Right. So it's not just the goodwill of the charts, but you have people who are, you know, and they can leave at any time, but generally, you know, it's the recurring, gonna, yeah. recurring revenue, yeah, so the recurring book of business that, that happens. Right. And, and again, you know, I, I kind of fight that fallacy that just because, you've built up your previous practice, there, there is a ton of value there because it's so hard to switch physicians and find somebody else and that type of stuff. So it drives me nuts when, when people talk about selling their practice to hospital systems. But yeah, you're totally right. And that's not something a lot of people touch upon from a DPC standpoint is that no, no, there's residual I, value in your practice, right? That is a huge value. We haven't even really talked about it yet. I think everybody's still you know, nervous about keeping their office busy and keeping it full and building it and educating that they're not even thinking, you know, that far down the line. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And they don't, they don't really need to, but the, the thing is too, when you sell your practice, your insurance based practice, this is really what I was really fearful about. They'll pull the doctor out of the practice that the hospital bought They'll, they'll split the staff up, they'll move the doctor around and you may never see your patients again. And, you know, I spent 13 years with building that practice. And like I said, I was taking care of whole families for over a decade. And it would break my heart to even think that I might be pulled out of there. Oh, that's, that's an interesting point. That's kind of a, they're indirect victims. Um, mm-hmm. when, a, when a doctor sells, quote unquote, sells their practice, joins the hospital system, that might be the best thing for them professionally, or they might be, you know, fed up with trying to, to run their individual practice. But really, again, it's patients who are losing out. And that is always a recurring theme that we hear about on why physicians like yourself decided to go to DPC and really focus on, on the patients. Well, and you know, there's something to, when you get to know families and patients, especially in a small practice, you can really read their faces when they walk in. You know them so well that you can tell when they come in or when they call a tone in their voice there's a level there of understanding and knowledge of your patient base. You can't put a dollar value on that. And that helps that patient receive better medical care and attention when there's that level of understanding between a staff and a physician and the patients. Oh, absolutely. And that was beautifully said. Um, Thanks. <laughs> I've talked about, you know, the personal story of why we're getting into DPC or why ever I got into DPC, you know, same type of thing. My, uh, my grandmother took um, too many blood thinners by accident um, a couple of years ago and her physician looked at her and said, hey, you don't look great. I need to see you tomorrow. And she came in and saved her life, gave her a great couple of, of years. Um, and it's that type of relationship that I know is one of the hallmarks of DPC. So with all those benefits in there, I think we're making a very compelling case of why physicians need to go DPC, but <laughs> they understand it's a risk, right? Um, or uncertainty. So, so I'm going to get your opinion. I think, I think physicians understand that a lot of them want to go independent, right? A lot of people want to have their own practice. They want to use their expertise, their skill level. They want to become active in their community. And um, kind of the Norman Rockwell vision of physicians is that, that yeah. that's what patients want to, that romantic kind of, uh, oh, the old doctor coming in with the black travel bag and, and uh, putting a stethoscope up <laughs> to the little girl's doll heart and stuff. So I love the imagery there, but um, there, seem, there is a lot of risk or uncertainty. I'm not really sure which term applies more, and I'd love to get your opinion on that, um, that keeps physicians from doing DPC. And what's your opinion on it at this stage 
if a doctor is starting in 2020 versus when you did in 2016, how much of that risk or uncertainty is real versus how much is perceived? Well, I think there's risk in any time you own a small business. And I think it's less risky now in 2020 than it was in 2016 because the model is becoming more mainstream and more obviously coveted. It's actually because I think we're becoming coveted by the amount of attention and questions we're getting from various entities who want to work with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think it's as scary uh, because it's, it's definitely more uh, entrenched. There's a risk with any small business, never mind running a practice. So there, it, there will always be that. Um, running a small business is not easy. I don't think that there's as much risk in getting patients if you run the practice right. And every practice is different. You know, like Josh, Josh again, I'm going to talk about Josh Umber again. He's my hero. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have Josh Umber of Atlas. Yeah, of Atlas I love D, obviously. For heroes, not just Josh. So I don't want him to get his, I don't want to get his, blow his head up too much. He's been um, doing it a while. I know, I know. Well, he's the one who convinced me. But um, I, he says, you know, if you've seen one DPC practice, you've seen one deep DPC practice. And the important part there with the small business is you've got to mold and like set your rates and your expectations and what you're providing based on what your community is going to respond to. So if you do that properly, the, the business risk gets a little less. But I think doctors are really afraid to run a business because we don't get any business courses. And one thing I think with the younger generation, because I'm 53, I finished my residency in 97. When I did my rotations, most of them were in private practices, even the specialists. <laughs> there was hospital-based, but I also got to see how they were running their businesses. And I didn't realize, but by osmosis, I was like learning all of this too, because that's yeah, the way it was. You know, the, yeah. yeah. My derm rotation was private practice. Um, my, my neurology, uh, cardiology, general surgery was private practice. They weren't even owned by the hospital. OBGYN. So, like, I got to see, you know, how they ran the front desk and dealt with their staff and, you know, delegated responsibilities. And this younger generation doesn't have that because everything is hospital-based. So that might increase their fear factor more because they weren't around a small business that's in medical office to know like, even a little bit about, about it. So that... I'm, I'm very impressed with the younger ones who are jumping on and just taking this bull by the horns and figuring out how to use QuickBooks and figuring out how to do their payroll taxes. And it's incredible. It's incredible. Their drive is, is very uh, invigorating. Yeah, I, absolutely. And it, it's more like they're following their ideology of why they got into medicine in the first place. And they realize that you don't become a doctor and, and go through medical school and residency to become a very well-paid data clerk and a data entry uh, no, clerk. No. They want to be physicians. They want to practice medicine and they want to take care of people. And that's what's really cool, especially ones jumping from residence right into a DPC mm-hmm. or those who signed their first contract with a hospital and said, hey, this isn't, this isn't what I signed up for. This is, this is not me. This is not what I want to do. Signing the contract brings up an interesting point because one of the fallouts from COVID you know, we've all heard about our colleagues getting their salaries cut. Mm-hmm. and Or being fired altogether. Yeah, that too. And, you know, here I am. I have a 20-year-old in college who wants to go to medical school. And I've always told him, oh, medicine's recession-proof, RJ. You'll always have a job. <laughs> and, um, yeah, yeah. And, and here the Corona-geddon happens and doctors are getting fired and uh, laid off. And he's like, mom. And I'm like, ooh. 
I, I never thought of this. Well, what you meant to say was it's recession proof if you follow the correct model course, right? You got to have a little aspect right. by it. Yes, yes. So, uh, you know, I know some physicians who have had to sign new three-year contracts at a lower salary for three years. So, Why you know, they, they do that. They have their salary cut and, and they're not going to be bonused and they have to, you know, they have to agree to a lower salary for three years. That, to me, would be enough to make me want to figure out how to run a business. Yeah, you know, and that's what, I, that's what I meant by that, by that question is why would doctors want to subject themselves to that? And it makes me think that they just don't even know about DPC or they don't know that there's a better way or they've been operating with their tail tucked between their legs for so long that that's all they know. I'm speculating, you know, and, but. And it honestly doesn't even have to be just DPC. Just go back into private practice, you know? I mean. Yeah, if you can find um, one, yeah. Yeah, you could do fee-for-service, you can still use insurance, whatever, but um, when somebody else is controlling the, your puppet strings, that's really uncomfortable, <laughs> especially when you're working you know, what, with what we do for a living. We'll be right back with Healthcare Americana after a quick word from our sponsors. There comes a time when the man of the house must take charge. Family planning is a tough conversation for many. And at Happy Dad Vasectomy, we understand that decision isn't easy. When your family is complete, our no-needle, no-scalpel, no-stitches procedure will give you peace of mind about your family's future. Happy Dad Vasectomy conveniently books appointments within two weeks of calling and has locations in central and northern Indiana. Visit happydadvasectomy.com to learn more. Happy Dad Vasectomy, the easiest part of family planning. You mentioned uh, the different types of personalities uh, that are in DPC right now. And yeah. if you've seen one, you've seen one of them, right? And, and I yeah. love that line because people kind of think of general practitioners as, no, oh, it's just a family doc. They're just triaging everybody to send them up to specialties. And if they're on insurance lists and they have a white lab coat and they have a stethoscope, they're all the same. You know, I think the insurance world has commoditized uh, family medicine to a point where it's it's has a negative impact on a lot of patients out there. And it's really sad because that's not the way I trained. I trained where the family doctor was, and my family doctor was like this, where it was the go-to, and they were the ones you went to to have the problem solved to help navigate the system, yep. and they were like communication yep. central. And I never lost that in my head because I was by myself, so I always functioned that way. And I was a little insulated from what was going on in the hospital system. I heard about it, but I wasn't there all the time. But I did start seeing, you know, family practice was becoming less and less. We weren't practicing to the scope of our abilities. And, um, and the 10-minute visits did not help. And that was, one, that was another thing that killed me in the office, having to go to these 10-minute visits. Um, you know, you can be really skillful. You can be really good at your your algorithm's super smart, but you cannot, 10 minutes is not enough time. And so what doctors were doing, family doctors were the first ones to get hit with these stupid quality measures. The specialists weren't hit yet. We had to cut quarters somehow, so it started referring for everything. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a form of uh, CYA too. Yes, that too, because you didn't have enough time to fully evaluate it, so you were afraid, yeah. It, it was just this vicious, this vicious cycle, and it slowly uh, caused family practice to start circling the drain, you know, as far as, like, you know, our relevance and our skills and, you know, our place in the medical pyramid. We are the base yep. of the pyramid. There's no arguing it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's up to primary care to take back those responsibilities that they vacated for the past 20, 30 years too. Yeah. Um, I want to take a t- some time here to discuss your activism. You're obviously uh, a driving force in DPC. You're active. I don't know how you find all the hours in the day. Uh, uh, with, you know, between your, I, your practice in uh, the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania, uh, yeah, trips to Washington, board yeah, directors. Don't talk to my DPC action board directors. I'll tell you what my sleep schedule's like. <laughs> Sometimes I don't sleep much because well, I'm doing so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, Dr. Corbett, when do you sleep? Sundays. Oh, okay. All right. Sounds good. Um, yeah. So, so what have you seen as a result um, of some of your activism and some of the, the activism of your peers? And, and what would you say to physicians who really want to become more involved and are just looking for an example to follow? Well, I would definitely tell them to reach out to any of us because DPC Action doesn't just advocate at the federal level. We have helped at the state level too. And there is still work to be done at the state level. And they can talk to any of us. We're, you know, It would be nice to have some really active physicians. And we did deal with some in Wisconsin uh, recently that were very, they were a wonderful group to deal with. Uh, they were trying to push through a Wisconsin bill that um, ended up not making it, but there's a lot of them we have to go around to on, on these things. And that was a great example of a very active, interested physicians who they would ask questions, pull us in when they needed us. You know, they were on top of what was going on in their state and we're always happy to educate and, and lead along. As far as the Washington stuff, our push for the past two years, we've been going back and forth quite a bit was this rule, this HSA rule, and favorable legislation. You know, I'm not sure what's going to happen on the legislative front before the election, considering they're out of, um, they, they end their sessions, what, soon in August, and then, then the election's around the corner. So there might be a sprint in the fall, I'm not sure. But the rule finally came out. That was, that was late. Part of it was, was good. Part of it wasn't what we expected, but there's a comment period. And the stuff in Washington, we kind of just decided, the five of us, to form DPC Action to represent the, the independence interest because there was a lot of things going on that really were not paying attention to how proposed changes would affect the independent small, small practices. And we make up the lion's share of the practices in the country and take care of the lion's share of the patients. And we don't, you know, obviously everybody has to coexist. The corporate DPCs are doing their thing and taking care of large businesses and saving them money and giving good care to the employees. But you can't sacrifice one for the benefit of the other. So that was really our reason for forming DPC Action, that we needed a voice for the independents. And, you know, the other, the doctors, you know, they're, everybody's supportive and follows us, but everybody's so busy building their practices and running their small businesses we get a lot of comments like we wish we could help more, um, but we're, you know, we don't, we're, we're so busy and, you know, we understand, we totally understand. So, um, you know, not that we're not busy either, but, you know, there were some relationships built there already in DC that were just easy to, to continue to develop. So. Yeah. And, and so on that, on that vein, and, and you mentioned the HSA and just to give a little bit of background out there, that's, to allow really black and white language from the IRS that allows uh, DPC members to use HSA's health saving account for a, a broader application of, of those payments. And one thing that's a gray area right now is our HSA's, can you use an HSA to pay for DPC membership? And 
most people say, hey, play it safe. And the answer is going to be no. But, you know, my question upon hearing that is, we've been kind of talking about a theme of how do we get more physicians? How do we help spread the word around DPC? And depending who you talk to, some are very um, optimistic about legislative changes that physicians will hear about. So would an HSA legislation, does that help physicians enter into DPC? Or is that solely targeted at making it easier to buy from a patient standpoint? I think it's both. I think um, we have heard that, um, you know, doctors are a little leery until some of that legislative language gets fixed because um, it will empower more patients to be able to choose DPC and pay with their HSAs. That being said, we know patients are paying with their HSAs and have been for a long time. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. If the IRS yeah, well, is listening, that's not true. That's right. I already told the White House. I, I told the White House when we were there, me, Lee, and um, Chad were there, and they were like, la, 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 la. Um, but nobody's been, in, they're not enforcing it. Now, that's not to say they're not going to enforce it. And we don't advise patients to do that. We tell them to talk to their accountants and their lawyers. Some accountants and lawyers, surprisingly, tell them to use their HSA. Yep. Some don't. Yep. But um, it, would make, it would make people more comfortable because, you know, when anytime there's a tax-related issue, it's like, ah, you know, like, that's not right. You know, that could be illegal. You know, that's scary. So that makes us even look more fringe, like a fringe movement. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, how, how are we supposed to wade through the hundreds of thousands of pages in the IRS tax code right. to figure this stuff well, out? So. let me tell you, we did. And we went down there and met with them last year. It was me and Josh and Chad. And we met with IRS and, um, and the Deputy Secretary of Treasury, who was very favorable and, and supportive of DPC, and um, 11 tax attorneys on the phone. And it was like, pew, 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 pew. Like we were dodging fire the whole time. It was like an hour and a half of just hammering us, trying to get us to admit that we're a form of insurance. And uh, we left that meeting and um, I looked at Lee and Chad and I said, I'm done. I'm done playing in the sandbox. If they can't figure out that we're not insurance, we'll, we're going to, we'll figure out another way to do this. I yeah. said, because I'm not wasting my time and money and we're working so hard to bring our patients value and access and help fix a broken system and they're going to sit there and tell us we're insurance. And, you know, and I'm spending my time and money to come down here and talk to them. Like it's talking to the wall. And yeah. so we're helping Americans. What more patriotic thing can we be doing? And so I was really, I was really fired up after that meeting. But so here we come with this HSA thing that the rule finally gets released. We were very excited for the president's executive order. We were invited to the white house. That was great. We met Trump and, and, you know, all the big senators and congressmen were sitting in front of us. And then the rule was supposed to come out in December. He was, the president was getting impeached and then COVID hit. And then there was a pause at COVID, but then the, the protests started. <laughs> so <laughs> the rule got released, but we are considered a qualified medical expense under tax code 213 now. So you can pay with your HSAs. The issue is whether people can still contribute to their HSAs because IRS did not come out and say we are not a form of insurance. <laughs> but if you think about it, how can you be a qualified medical expense and insurance at the same time? Right? It's almost better to ask for forgiveness rather than permission on this one. Well, I, yeah, that's another Joshism. Sorry. Yeah. But, um, no, I get it. I get it. So last thought of the day here, and, and this, is, this is for you here. You mentioned that you went to Washington and you had the best interest of your patients and the best interests of your fellow DPC doctors in there. In my opinion, 
we're not going to change anything from a big scale until we have more people, more physicians practicing DPC, more patients who are, are buying into this model. So last thought of the day, how do we continue to spread the positive message of direct primary care? I think through uh, like what we're doing with the association here on uh, our grant that we got, we're lecturing medical students and residencies and we're all taking turns. It's happening on the west side of the state in Pittsburgh. It's happening on the east side of the state here in the south in Philly. I spoke up in Scranton to Geisinger. I think the more that they hear us and see us in person and also patient testimonials on the word of mouth of the patients that they're happy with the care. I think that that is just, it's the groundswell, you know, rising tides raise all ships. It's just a rising tide. And I think the tide is high after COVID because I think people are really valuing, learn to really value their primary care relationship in a crisis like this. And it doesn't have to be an infection crisis. It could be a heart attack. It could be cancer, God forbid could be mental health, it could be substance abuse, any of those things. I think just uh, continuing to educate and just building the groundswell of uh, what we do for our patients and the word of mouth, it's not happening overnight, but it's definitely accelerated. So I also think with what's happened to the doctors who are employed, that there's going to be a lot of thoughtful reflection going on Mm -hmm. in the next year. You know, and that's not something we would ever hope would happen to any of our colleagues, you know, financial hardship and put in these situations. But, and, you know, DPC is not the answer for everything, but we are a solution. And I think that's going to also help. Dr. Kimberly Lake Corba, DPC physician out of Pennsylvania, member of the board of directors of DPC Action, founder and president of the Pennsylvania Direct Primary Care Association. Thanks for joining us on Healthcare Americana. Thank you for having me. Healthcare Americana is powered by Freedom HealthWorks, managed by Melissa Turpin, produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Send us your thoughts at info at healthcareamericana.com. I'm Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. And hey, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, let us know that too. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.